Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. And we go to the 15th lecture, the final one on this series, which I've entitled Progress Without Peace, uh, Israel and Jewish People, 1952-56. And tonight, as I said, is considering the future from the perspective of the past, Middle East in the second half of the 21st century, the next couple of years. And I would start by making the observation that in considering the present and future situation in the Middle East, the most remarkable thing that leaps to one's attention is the fact that the more things change, the more they change, stay the same. It's particularly true in the Middle East. Plus the change, plus the shows, as the French say. The dominant reality, I'll cut right to the chase, and the chief cause of all the trouble has been the permanence of the transient. Let's start with Israel. The problem remains, the big problem they had back in 1949. You go alone was ready to conquer all of Helsin. They were this close to taking off the Gaza Strip. You heard that with me. They really were just about there. Uh, the Israelis had the opportunity, if you followed what I've been talking about, and I know you have, most of you, uh, they could have easily taken over what they call the West Bank and all the rest of it. At that time, it was a work going one, but Truman said, stop, and Ben-Gurion stopped. Right? Israel has indefensible borders. Ben-Gurion only accepted them under, under pressure from Truman, thinking that it was temporary. It was a ceasefire. They didn't know the armistice would turn out that way. Ben-Gurion was convinced that some way or other, Israel would find a way to expand. And so Ben-Gurion was thinking that way, Moshe Dayan was thinking that way, and they just gave in to Truman at that time because it was a brand new state and they're afraid of messing at all with the United States at that particular point. Only Yigal alone, to be perfectly honest, who was the commander of the army at that time, the Southern Army, perceived that it was now or never. And so if you ever read closely a biography of Yigal Alon, closely study what happened in uh, f- late 48 and early 49, not just the generalities, you know, he was always saying like this, we have to take over the next vil- village and the next valley, because this is where the lines are going to be. And the actual borders of Israel are basically based on what they took or grabbed or things like this, literally in the last moments, because he perceived what the others were not willing to perceive, which is this is as far as it's going to get. So as I told you earlier this semester, that Ben-Gurion was in La La Land, he thought at the time of the Suez Canal that Israel could conquer the Sani and somehow annex that, certainly the Gaza Strip and who knows what else. And Eisenhower and the other guys gave him a, a rude wake-up call. And only afterwards was he forced in the privacy of his thoughts to realize I've been living in a dream world. And that the borders, which we accepted in 49, which are not good borders, are the borders. <laughs> and what a mistake we made. Um, as we know, the temporary borders became permanent. And the USA today, as everybody knows, is helping for leather and getting Israel back to those borders. It doesn't make any sense legally, and certainly makes no sense in a geographic or a topographic way, but we're all aware that an international consensus formed long ago that these armistice lines are Israel's final borders no matter what Netanyahu wants, or the settlers, or anybody else. Right? Israel has had their Ben-Gurion moment, and all these guys dreaming of this, that, and the other, except a few that really are dreamers, are aware of the painful fact that Israel will be lucky if they get what they get. And 
I repeat, the borders make no sense, especially with that crazy narrow waist, where Israel is as narrow as it's nine miles wide. But that's what you're stuck with. Yigal alone at that time said in 1949, forget, forget Truman, at least capture Tulkarim and double it from the narrowest border, from nine miles to 18. I mean, that's not great either, but better than nine. And the other said, no, 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 you're not realistic. We're the realistic ones. You'll see tomorrow, the day after, we'll figure out a way to get it back. We'll make everything work. And so that's why I speak about the permanence, tragically, of the transients. Um, as we all know, this is what carries into right now. This consensus is based on what Coleridge very famously called, or described as the essence of fiction, which was what? The willing suspension of disbelief? Huh? The Israelis were doing that? The international community today is doing that. John Kerry is certainly doing that. He's saying, if we can only get a binding treaty between Israel and the PLA on the one hand, we will actually bring peace to the Arab-Israeli conflict and peace to the greater Middle East. What do you call that if not the willing suspension of disbelief? I'm sad to say it. But, you know, and these are educated people, and they're intelligent people, but is this, or is this not, as Lewis Carroll said, is not the world that we live in. Um, the Arab world is divided, at least publicly, over the question of this international consensus. Some Arab states are willing, say they're willing, to recognize the 49 borders, the armistice borders, as Israel's legitimate borders. But of course, others are not. And so you get all this business where Abu Mazen, I'm no, I mean, I know you're all educated, you follow the news, he says we're willing to take the 49 borders, basically. Uh, these other guys, Hamas, Iran, said, 49 borders are legitimate, and from the Arab point of view, they're correct. Because there's nothing essential about them, it's just where the fighting stopped. So they got a point. The big question, the question Obama and Kerry do not want to ask is, how sincere is Abu Mazen in accepting these 49 borders? This is a tactical or strategical move. We all know this, but it's the willing suspension of disbelief. If he said, what they're going to say is like, what's the alternative? What else can we negotiate with? And nobody wants to hear the truth, which is there's nothing to negotiate because they don't mean it. And hence you have the dynamics that we read about in the papers all the time. And you have the recipe for what's coming up in the next decade. The Arabs have never changed their position since 48, not accepting those borders. Armistice, yes. Peace, no. Legitimacy, never. This is basically what characterized the Rhodes Negotiations in 1949. This characterized, as you know, uh, the Bill Clinton moment in 93. And it characterizes the current moment that's Bibi and Abu Mazen smiling for the cameras. Right? Do they mean it? <laughs> um, remember, the only borders the United Nations has ever recognized as legitimate are the 47 borders. True or not? The General Assembly, you all know this, especially now with me, you know it. These are the only real legitimate borders, they're not defensible, the real legitimate borders that the world has ever said belongs to Israel. Remember, ever since 49, the UN, including the USA, has annually confirmed the right of return. It was resolution right, 194. If you look at it closely, it says that all the refugees can come back. Okay? Now, um, you can play with the words, but that's the way most people read it. I repeat, the United States annually signs on to this. So Israel's position in international law is not a good one. In addition, it has to be recalled that the Arabs in Israel proper are there 
only because they're physically conquered in 48. There were 200,000 of them in 48. There's 1.7 million today. Those are the numbers. So they've gone up eightfold. You do the calculation, you do the math, and you see where it's heading. The Arabs are simply waiting for a peace treaty to be negotiated by Kerry, requiring Israel to withdraw the 67 borders, or the 49 borders if you want. Once that happens, and pay close attention to what I'm telling you, once that happens, and there's a recognized state in the West Bank, the next step is to start a national liberation movement in the Galilee, which has an Arab majority. Once there begins an Israeli-Arab intifada, not an intifada of the West Bank, but an intifada within Israel, in Nazareth, and places like that, it will trigger an international movement to stigmatize Israel as an apartheid, an illegitimate occupying power in the Galilee, and all the liberals who have been assuring Israel that if they only sign the peace treaty with the Palestinian authorities, all their troubles will be over, which is what you constantly hear, these same liberals will then demand that Israel relinquish the Galilee and the Negev, by the way, where the Bedouins are a majority, and uh, <laughs> goodbye. So uh, what do they have to say about this? So where will Obama and Kerry, or the next president, Rex Secretary of State, be on the Galilee issue? which I'm sorry to say will be next on the plate. You tell me. Right. Now, this is really Israel's big strategic nightmare. I didn't want to do this, but I was asked to talk about the future, so I'm doing it. This is really Israel's big strategic nightmare. Okay? Imagine, for example, if the European Union boycotts Israel economically for their injustice to the Galilee Arabs. Could happen tomorrow. And what would Israel do? And where will all the newspapers be? And where will all the liberal Jews be on the subject? And I can, just, I can write the stories myself. Right? Is there a discrimination against Arabs within Israel itself? There is discrimination. Not the way they say it, but is it a horrible thing? It depends what, what kind of a news story you want to make it. But it's coming. Now, Israel's negotiators can only hope to include language in a treaty with the PLA, which will preclude all this. Hence, all the headlines that you read about that Israel wants the Arabs to include language in the treaty recognizing Israel as a Jewish state. That's what it all means. So that tomorrow, the Galilee Arabs or the Bedouin and Negev can't say, no, this is our state and we want to take it over. Israel hopes that they said, no, but you signed and it said, this is a Jewish state. But no language can preclude what I just spoke about. Not really. True or not true? It doesn't really work. Thus, the basic Palestinian and Arab strategy against Israel has not really changed since 1949. Only the tactics have. They've been out to get rid of Israel this way or that way. They actually, in 1949, wanted to go back to the 47 borders and bring it the right of return, which is another way of saying to undo Israel. This is true in 1949. It's true in 2009. It's going to be true in 2019 also. I mean, you know, if, if, if things stay the same. And the media environment against Israel is much worse today than it was in 1949. This is not the world of Edward R. Murrow, who was in love with Israel. It's the world of Al Jazeera, as everyone knows. And so the environment is what it is. I think that if Ben-Gurion had known all this, the borders would look different. I think he would have told Truman, this is something we can't compromise on, or this, that, other, or he would have stood There's no way to tell, of course. It's a, it's a what if. But some people like to play what if games. Um, but I know the borders would not look the crazy way they do now. Moreover, these borders were perhaps, perhaps defensible in 49 when we had a weak Egypt and a weak Jordan. I've told you before, 
contrary to popular belief. Israel was militarily a lot stronger and had a bigger army than Jordan needs to put together back in those years. Okay? Even though it was a smaller country, but they had a full mobilization, they had an efficient draft, and they put together a larger force. Um, what about today? Or what about tomorrow? I mean, here's a, it's a day road blowing up. It was one of those rockets. As we know, the geography and the technology have not worked out so well in Israel's favor. Indeed, all of Israel now is Sadeh Road. As we learned a couple of, you know what these maps are. They show you how far the missiles can hit. And I know, again, that everybody here is interested in keeping up with what's going on in Israel. And you read, as I do, they can hit anything because the technology has moved that far. So it's not 1949 anymore in this regard. So what we're talking about is a problem of dissonance between the modernized weaponry on the one hand and an international political system which is still holding circa 1950. They're still treating the border question and Israel's rights and all the rest of it in 1950. Plus, individual Arab political systems which are not holding in 1950 but in 950. <laughs> this history of modern times or the history of modern times has taught us that there's nothing more dangerous than such gaps. Because then science assumes Frankenstein proportions. What was the problem with World War I, World War II, and afterwards? You had a guy like this who was a fool in charge of a huge country with modern te technology. He wasn't a capable statesman, but he said, what the hell, let's go to war in 1948 because of the shot the Archduke and all this business. You see, you would expect a country highly developed as Germany would have a highly developed national security um, committee system such as we have in the United States, we like to think, and you'd have a system where options are debated and worked out, you try to come to, and, and there's a cost-benefit kind of analysis, and you know, rational planning. But Germany, with its huge power, didn't do that. They just said, let's have a war. And Hitler is even better. How did a country as smart and big as Germany, I'm not talking about, forget the Jews, how did a country as smart as big as Germany, with all technology, allowed himself to be in a system where one person, and a grand total of one person, was a nut, but one person had all the power to make all the decisions and no one could ever contradict him. So when he was right, he was right. But when he was wrong, nobody could do anything about it. And how do you do it? See what I'm talking about? The problem in modernity, in the last hundred years at least, is the problem of the gap between the scientific system, which is highly developed, and the political system, which turns out to be underdeveloped in so many of these cases. What's the story with this guy, Osama bin Laden? if not the fact that he's prospering, or he and his types are prospering in this environment in which they're taking advantage of the technology to undermine the political systems of stability as a Frankenstein. The bad guys are getting hold of the science and they're creating a monsters out of it, as we all know. Accordingly, Israel faces a grim future, actually a disastrous future, and it doesn't bother these guys at all, I don't think. Furthermore, if anything bad happens, God forbid, they'll, they'll be able to explain very eloquently why it was not their fault. <laughs> Furthermore, whereas in the past, a substantially united American Jewish community could assure a favorable American administration, that's part of the story that I told you about in Eisenhower's time, today, the American Jewish community is more and more fractured, with substantial voices being raised against Israel. You follow the J Street stuff, and you saw this, I'm sure, recently about the Swarthmore Hillel that they, <laughs> how's it go? They defy headquarters on, boy, on boycott Israel program restrictions. You know, they want to bring in all kinds of people into the Hillel who are anti-Israel and so forth. They want to listen because that's where, that's where it's holding. So I'm not saying anything that we don't know. And then 
In addition, there's the rise, particularly in the Democratic Party, of a substantial anti-Israel element in American politics, I'm sorry to say. I know everybody saw this, is familiar with this, but I'll show it to you again. What happened last year, or a year and a half ago, at the Democratic Convention, this Democratic Party, when they brought up the Jerusalem thing. Remember that? For those of you who didn't, take a look at this. This is a non-debatable motion requiring a two-thirds vote. All of those in favor of suspending the rules, say aye. All those opposed, say no. In the opinion of the chair, there's been a two-thirds affirmative vote to suspend the rules. Governor, would you like to make your motion? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, this summer, I was proud to serve this party as the platform drafting committee chair. As the chair, I come before you today to discuss two important matters related to our party's national platform. As an ordained United Methodist minister, I am here to attest and affirm that our faith and belief in God is central to the American story and informs the values we've expressed in our party's platform. In addition, President Obama recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and our party's platform should as well. Mr. Chairman, I have submitted my amendment in writing and I believe it is being projected on the screen for the delegates to see. I move adoption of the amendment as submitted and shown to the delegates. A motion has been made. Is there a second? Is there any further discussion? Hearing none, the matter requires a two-thirds vote in the affirmative. All those delegates in favor say aye. All those delegates opposed say no. In the opinion of the... Let me do that again. All of those delegates in favor say aye. All those delegates opposed say no. It's not the old Democratic Party, right? This would not have happened with Hubert Humphrey, Scoop Jackson, or that's, uh, that's uh, the other McCormick, anyway, uh, LBJ or Simon or the other. I mean, I, you know what I'm talking about up here, right? Now, uh, I mean, they had to ram that through and, and so on and so forth. Um, this, is, this bespeaks a different political environment for the state of Israel. Can't, you can't deny it unless you wish to. To sum up, Israel's historic assets. What were Israel's historic assets? a united American Jewry, a technologically weak set of Arab states unable to deliver mortal blows against Israel, a media climate favorable for Israel, a West not inundated by tens of millions of Muslims, an international cultural climate still reeling from the Holocaust in which any anti-Semitism was totally illegitimate 
All these assets, which served Israel well in the past, no longer do so, or no longer do so as well as they used to. Thus, Israel's position is weakened, as reflected in its inability to blunt John Kerry. It, is. it ought to be that they should just blow this away. You can't do it. And, 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 and this is the way, you know, this is the world in which we live. Not the world in which we would like to live, the world in which we live. So these are the variables in play when one contemplates the Israel situation in the second decade of the 20th century. It's not a pretty picture, is it? However, all these sober calculations may turn out differently due to the unbelievably complicated situation in the Arab world. For the Arab world, if you followed my various lectures, I know you over the last several years, the Arab world suffers from some fundamental structural problems it shows no signs of solving. First and foremost, there's the phony nature of the Arab state system. Who, who created all these countries which never existed before? These guys at the, at the, at the Versailles Conference in, in 1919. Okay? They created all the countries that you look on the map with the borders. Uh, every state in the Middle East, in reality, every state in the Middle East is composed of shvatim, of ethnic and religious groups or tribes who have hated each other since time immemorial. The fact that European outsiders unilaterally created political states out of different pieces of the incredibly complex ethnic and religious mosaic did not do anything to make the situation less complex or more harmonious. Let me explain. To get a stable country, as we define it, is not push it, it's not overnight. It takes a long time and culture and centuries. Think, for example, of England. You know, till you got to England that's normal, first you had to start with William the Conqueror, and then all these kings down to Henry VIII, and then you have Albert Cromwell chop up the king and do that, and then you had till you got to Queen Victoria's time and the Queen Elizabeth today. It didn't happen overnight. It's the long history of the English peoples. You had the Magna Carta and later the rise of Parliament and the uh, deprivation by Parliament of the power of the absolute power of the king and the glorious revolution. I mean, I don't have to live. You, most people know what I'm talking about. If you ever took a course in, in, in European history, it took a long, long time for them to get past Henry VIII to where they are today. It's not a simple matter to develop a stable, normal society. If you don't like England, look at Germany. First of all, it took them forever to get one country together. When, you had to go through Bismarck, and then to the Weimar Republic. Ebert was the head of the Weimar Republic. And then they had to do all the junk with Hitler. And then Adenauer had to put together at the end of the war. And the Germans are very intelligent, highly educated people with a lot of culture in the background. And finally, you end up with the normal Germany of today with Angela Merkel who actually is pro-Israel, as you know. Say what you want about the Germans, but they got a normal country. It's a stable country, you see? We're very lucky, blessed by God in the USA, that we start out with guys like this. So they put it together in the beginning in the right way. Washington, Adams, and all Most countries don't have that founding father kind of business. Who are the founding fathers of Germany? Who are the founding fathers of France, of England, of Norway, and any of these countries? A bunch of banditten, you know? <laughs> it's, 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 it's a mafia. You know, the U.S. Is, is, is really lucky in this regard, and we should, we should uh, acknowledge that. This is not a plug for the White House tour, but it is what it is, you see? So I'm trying to show you, to get a stable country is a work of art that takes a long time, a high degree of education and maturity. Frankly, it requires a Christian kind of culture, you see? And the ethnic and the religious all have to come together. It's not Pushin'. 
A stable, legitimate political state is not a simple matter, and this has been noted very thoughtfully by thinkers from Edmund Burke down to Moynihan, who have always written very eloquently on the fragility of society and the state. Don't ever take anything for granted. You should be conservative politically in the sense of having a, a, a reverence for the existing order, which will never be perfect, but represents a law and order kind of situation which allows you and me to walk up the street, you know, to go about our lives. Nothing will ever be 100%. Nothing will ever be 100%. But you, to, to apply the normal basics, that you shouldn't be a crazy country with people killing each other and blowing everything up, that's a very high level. And one should never take this for granted. Now, let's move to the Arabs. <laughs> uh, how did the modern Arab states come about? Well, as you know, uh, Mark Sykes and, and, and Francois Picot got together in 1915 without asking anybody and drew up the maps. You see, but they drew up the maps. And later on, they modified the maps a little bit, the guys after them. Did they consult with the Arabs? I mean, you know, did this have anything to do with what I talked about? English history resulting in a political, stable state, or American history, or German history, or, or, or even French, God help us, history, or something like that. You know, it's not, none of that, of course. Um, countries, entire countries, were created after the First World War purely to satisfy princes. Specifically, the British had promised Faisal that he would get a big kingdom. They were not able to deliver. So they said, if you can't pay Nezik Shalom, play at least Khatsi Nezik. And so, you can't give him the whole Middle East. But the British understood the first rule of politics, which is you have to reward your friends and punish your enemies. Otherwise, why should anybody be your friend? And this guy, Faisal, had demonstrably been their friend. And they realized if they leave him totally with nothing, it'll send a bad message, which is don't pay to be friends with England. So in order to make it that people should want to be friends with England, they created a country for him called Iraq. This is how Iraq was made. They took a piece of this, a piece of that, and something in the middle, and they said, and it was created specifically to satisfy this guy to make England look good. He had a brother, Faisal did, named Abdullah. He also was left holding the bag. He was originally supposed to be in Arabia. Once again, the British said, Winston Churchill specifically said in 1922, it doesn't look good for England to have somebody who was acknowledged as our friend be totally in the lurch. Let's give him a country. And they invented what they call Jordan. Does this have anything to do with the Magna Carta? <laughs> with the stability? Was William the Conqueror with a Bismarck? You see what I'm saying? You have to understand this when you read the papers every day. That what are we talking about over here? How is Syria created? How is Lebanon created? The French, they said, we want a piece of the pie. And so Sykes and Picot said, like this, who's going to get what? And the British were very sneaky. They said, we'll take the Iraq part. It looks junkier because they had geology reports that it was oil. You see? And the French got cheated. They never forgave them for that. But the French said, like this, we have historic interests in the Levant and in, in Syria because, uh, you know, the Crusaders were in Syria and the French have a lot of uh, schools and missionary things in Syria, and especially there's a separate place called Lebanon. No, no, not yet, not yet. There's a special place called Lebanon, and Lebanon had a bunch of Christians there, and France considered some of the protectors of the Christians. That was an imperialist important. I mean, what does that mean? France is all the way over here. Lebanon's all the way. No, we're your special protector. We have the right in there. Meaning this was totally about French pride and their arrogance, if you wish. And in order for this purpose to satisfy their own things, they took over a country called Syria who didn't want them, and they took over and, and eventually carved its borders and made a new country. And out of that, they took a piece later on in the 1930s, which they wanted to separate out separately so they have a Christian state so that the French would always have base over there because when the Muslims kick them out, the Christians will always be on their side. That's the plan, the Maronites and the others. And hence, the, so this is the basis of the creation of political states 
today. Um, now let's take it in detail. What is Syria really? There's no country called Syria. These, as you can see over here, are the Sunnis. Nobody lives here. It's all desert. Let's get that straight. This is what we call a country. It's all desert. Um, these are the Sunni Muslims, who are the biggest. And they're real angry because here's the Alawites. Look what a small piece they are of the whole fabric. So they say it's not fair that the Alawites are ruling all Syria since 1970 when Assad Sr. shot his way into power and killed everybody and established a dictatorship with the help of Russia and the secret police and all the rest of it in order to keep hold and killed millions of people in order to keep this down. And his son is doing the same thing until there. What I'm trying to say is like this. Don't forget the Druze, by the way. <laughs> okay? You see? So, uh, is there a country called Syria? Who made these borders? Who decided on this? Who decided that these guys should be in here and not part of this? Or part of this? Sykes and Picot and Woodrow Wilson and Clemenceau and all these other guys. What's it their business? That's what happened. And nobody's tampering with the system today because whoever's in power is benefiting from the system. Hence, don't be surprised if you have a murderous civil war going on in, in Syria. This is what it's all about. It has nothing with democracy. It has nothing with politics. It has to do with Shabbatim fighting each other and trying, one trying to kill the other. Um, let's take a look at Lebanon, a so-called country. Right? Okay. Here's the Shiites. That's all we need, right next to Israel. Here's the Sunnis over here. So it turns out there's more Shiites. Many people don't know this. Many people, there are more Shiites in Lebanon than there are Sunnis, which is a major reason why Syria and Iran always have such, Hezbollah has such a major stake in Lebanon because they see this as projection of the Shiite reality, which is Iran. There's a border. Unfortunately, got a couple of Christians over there. These are the Maronites and other Christian groups, as, as you can see over there. But in the good old style, they figured the Shiites will take over and then they'll shock the Christians and they won't have that problem. But I ask you again, if somebody says, I represent Lebanon, that's a lie. What does that word mean? Do you represent this group? Do you represent that group? And the others. If it's the United States of America where everybody agrees to vote and abide by it. But it's not America over here. As somebody said, it's not the Midwest, it's the Mideast. Let's take a look at Iraq. You can do it country by country. Okay? This we even know already. This, this group is supposed to be uh, the Sunnis. Most of this is desert. But this group is the Sunnis. Here's a big chalak, including Baghdad, of the Shiites. Here are the Kurds. They all hate each other. And the American soldiers are lucky to get out of there while they all shoot each other and blow each other up every week. We're so used to this. It's like when you buy a car. When you're interested in the car, you listen to the commercials. And once you bought the car, you tune it out. So now, when I'll tell you, now that I told you this, try this tomorrow morning or the rest of the week. Listen to the news while you're driving or something like that. And tell me if you hear about a bomb going off, killing 100, 200 people in Baghdad or someplace in Iraq. And you say, oh, there is there. How come I didn't notice this? Because you have so often you tune it out. Why is that? Because this is artificial, as you can see. And all of them hate each other. And who put it together? Woodrow Wilson and Clemenceau and Sykes and Pico and Winston Churchill and all the rest of it. Has no real reality in there. What about Saudi Arabia? Which everybody thinks, ooh, Saudi Arabia. This whole chalik, here's Saudi Arabia. This whole chalik of the, of the uh, Saudi Peninsula Shiites. They hate the Saudis. The Saudis to them are Apikursim. Of course, it goes the other way around also. To the Sunnis who are the Saudis, everybody over here are Apikursim. I mean that. Now, what's the rule in Islam for somebody who's Apikuras? Okay, so A wants to kill B, wants to kill A. I got no problem with it. I'm just telling you what the way it's going on. And, and wait a minute. So the result is that Saudi Arabia is really a police state which is suppressing by violent force a huge proportion of the population. Okay, but nobody ever says anything about it, especially President Obama. And, and the answer for that is one word. Okay, so w w what is, I mean, keep this in mind when you have John Kerry shuttling back and forth to the Middle East 
and talking about a solution of the national problems that we can end the Middle East conflict by solving the core issue, which is the Arab-Israeli conflict over there. By the way, I've been touched. Here you have what you call the, the Gulf states, because there's the, the water. And all the Gulf states, like Bahrain and Qatar, all of them have a Shiite majority population, but a Sunni Arab bunch of sheiks running like a mafia. A couple years ago, there were big riots in Bahrain, if you follow the news. Saudi Arabia sent in tanks which shot everybody in the street. Obama said nothing. He was asked about it at the uh, press conference, and he switched the subject, you know? So, I'm, you know, th th this is the reality of the Arab world. This is what Israel faces every day. By the way, what about the great Iran? This you should know, that Iran is 60%, I repeat, six, according to them, is 60% Iranians and 40% others. In reality, that's a lie. Uh, I know you're shocked to hear that Iranians are lying. Is it, in reality, it's 50-50. So already today, in Iran today, as we speak, 50% are Iranians, 50% are a group like the Kurds, and uh, what do you call them? Who's the other ones? they got the Azerbaijanis over here in the whole areas. And, no, they all hate each other. And if they had a chance, they'd blow up Iran, because Iran's been dominating and, 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 and torturing them for centuries, not for a little while, for centuries. Okay? Um, let's go to Egypt. Let's take a look at the Arab world in general. Once you, want to, once you bring this up, he says, here's Egypt, here's the rest of, of North Africa. Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, uh, Algeria, Morocco. Egypt is a country of 85 million people, of which 15 million people are Coptic Christians. They've been there since, since the oldest church. Oldest church. They've been there before the Muslims, and the Muslims want to kill them, and they like to kill them. There's too many of them to kill, but they're working on it. <laughs> they're working on it. Of course, if the cops have their way, they'll do it the other way around. Um, and the truth is, the Coptics have their own religion. They also have their own alphabet, their own writing. It's pre-Arab, get it? Egypt is not an Arab country. They were conquered and raped by the Arabs. They just like don't want to admit it. You know, I'm gonna, you don't mean to tell you that there was an Egypt with Pharaoh and all that way before the Islamic. Actually, there was an Egypt with Pharaoh before Abraham even started. Isn't that true? Right, as we know from the Hamish. So they're all. They have a very proud tradition. Nope, no, they don't. Conquered by the Arabs, and now they want to be crushed over there. And they're giving Musa to Israel. You see? Now, I'm not finished. You take Libya, turns out Gaddafi was shot by the other tribe. I know you all know what I'm talking about. He was shot by the other tribe. What other tribe? Oh, I didn't know that Libya is an artificial reality. There used to be an area called Cyrenaica. There's another area called Tripoli. The Italians in 1912 invaded and conquered this whole area when the Ottoman Empire was very weak. The Italians, for their own administrative purposes, united the whole area over here into something called Libya. That's, that's a phony thing that never existed before. It's something that they created for their own purposes. And now it turns out that the tribes, I literally mean tribes, I mean clans, from Group A don't like the group from Group B, and this one wants to kill that one, and that wants to kill this one, and Gaddafi represented Tribe A, and he ended up being killed by members of Tribe B, and gee whiz, I never heard anything about that in the news, do you? Um, we go down the line. Take a look, I won't spend the whole time on this, but it's true in Tunisia, uh, Algeria, and Morocco, you have a huge underclass called the Berbers. When I myself was in Morocco a couple years ago, one of the trips, we had a very nice trip, and we had a great tour guide who met us at the, uh, met us at, the uh, at the dock in Tangier and so forth. When they saw a Berber passing by, he looked at him like Jim Crow, baby. You know, and he, and he treated, I asked, who is this person? All the rest, he don't even pay attention. That person is it's not a human being. You see. This is what you've got over there between the Arabs, who are the dominant group on the one hand, and the Berbers, who are growing in number all across Algeria and Morocco especially, and Tunisia. You never hear about this. You see? And so it, what happened? The Berbers, long, long, long ago, in the 600s, were conquered by the Muslims. That's all. 
and they've been forced into there into Islam, and they've been treated as a huge underclass, and, and there you have it down today. They, so one country after another is ready just to light a match and the whole thing will blow up. What I'm telling you is that there really is no possible way to get the kind of stability that can only come from a universal satisfaction with a status quo in the political arrangements currently obtaining in the Middle East. There are always and will always be lots of people out there and groups radically dissatisfied with the status quo because they're the losers in that status quo. This is the real world, not the world of the diplomats that they show you on television or something like this, and when John Kerry meets with the foreign minister of Egypt, or better yet, the foreign minister of Saudi Arabia, like they're really representing a country or something like that. They're representing a particular mafia group, which is holding everybody down by shooting them as we speak. You see? Now, Kerry won't bring that up, because that's not polite. But I'll tell you right now, Israel needs to change the rules of the game. The only difference in the groups is size and potential to be a majority. For example, the Christians are in deep trouble. They're always going to be a minority, and they have to adjust their policies to that fact. So here's Sisi, the new general uh, uh, president, so forth, the guy who takes over Egypt, and here's the Pope of the Coptics of 10, 15 million people, and he's got to kiss him and kiss up to him. I mean, the Coptic guy has to kill up to Sisi because what's the alternative? Get the Muslim Brotherhood, they'll kill him. So the Christians have to play the game of a minority. They have no choice. On the other hand, you have other groups who could be a majority. The Kurds are very able to make a state, but have been prevented from doing so. Oh, that would be good. Look at this. This is Kurdistan. No, this is, this is what the country really should look like, which Woodrow Wilson promised them in 1919. He just was not able to deliver. After all, the Kurds are their own people with their own language and their own culture. They happen to be Sunni Muslims, but they're not Arabs. Ask them, they'll punch you. You see? I want you to understand this. And they were promised a homeland under national self-determination, blah, 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 and it didn't happen because it didn't work out for the oil interests of Sykes and Pico and Clemenceau and Lloyd George and all these other guys. That's what happened. So the Kurds really got shafted. They got screwed by the statesmen of the big four. And not only were they, were they shafted, let's go to the next one, then I'm going to come back for a minute by these guys, but also by Roosevelt and Churchill and Stalin after the Second World War because they promised them to give them a land and they didn't do it either. Now let's go back for a second. Oi, halavai. If you do this, this destroys Turkey and takes a big chunk out of Syria, most of Iraq, and a big piece of Iran. True? Now I want to tell you something most of you probably don't know. The Kurds and the Jews have always gotten along very well. The history of the Kurds and the Jews most of the time has been a very positive one. It worked in the classic Middle Eastern style in which, you know, like the Godfather movie, the guy goes over to the Kurdish chieftain and he says, I'm your uh, boy. And in return for that, you get the right to protection. They don't bother you during the civil wars and the clan battles. And you get the right to practice your religion. I mean, it doesn't get better for that if you're a Jewish minority in the, in the Middle East, not in your own country, in the Islamic world. The Kurds in 1948, 49, 50, 51 had, you know, helped the Jews to go to Israel. They had no trouble with that. And uh, the Kurds, subsequently building upon that, you, by the way, you go, if you're interested in the subject, just go for online and look up Wikipedia articles called Kurds and Jews or Kurds in Israel. And you'll be amazed at what you find, because they don't hear about this in the regular news. The, um, the state of Israel and the Kurds have been very tight since the 50s. I um, hope to speak about that, Mir Hashem, next year. That's what happens. Here's the two Barzanis, father and son. This guy's the George Washington of the Kurds, so to speak. Uh, 
maybe I should say the, the Don Corleone of the Kurds, but they don't know this. George Washington of the Kurds, and this is his son, who's cre- who presently is the president of Kurdistan, whatever they call it over there in northern Iraq. Uh, here is Ben Gurion's top spy, Ruben Shiloh, back in the 40s and 50s, who hooked up with these Kurds long ago with the Mossad. Here's Ben Gurion who fostered this, as I'll speak about hopefully in the future. And it happens today. I know you follow the news, so perhaps you recall not that long ago, Turkey was in a particularly stinky mood at the moment. Uh, I'm not even bothering to talk about Turkey today because I got too long of a, uh, of a talk tonight as it is. But Turkey recently stabbed Israel in the back by giving the names of all the Israeli spies to Iran. Did you uh, did anyone see that? All those spies were Kurds. You understand? Those the guys who are doing the Mossad work of blowing up the uh, scientists and the nuclear plants and all this kind of, are not Israelis, they're Kurds. And why are the Kurds doing this? The Kurds are getting something out of it also. And Israel is totally in favor that they should rip off a third of Iran and make up a Kurdistan for it. I'm in favor, though, aren't you? You see? And so, history very funny. Who knows which way the cards will be shuffled. Short of everyone converting to democratic liberalism, there is no way to have a political system in which all are equal. On the contrary, au contraire. The history of the region has always been one of regional dominance by some overwhelmingly powerful, sunny Muslim ethnic group. First, it was the Arabians, long ago, in the 600s, the 700s, down to around the, the 1200s or so. Then it was the Turks. The job of the minorities for centuries over there was to bow and scrape in exchange for legal protection. I just told you the wonderful relation that Jews have with the Kurds, and it was a good one. But it basically is, you gotta kiss their feet, but in return, you get something for it. You see? But that is how the rule, has, the game has to be played. Indeed, the Ottoman Turkish Empire for four centuries was exactly what I just described. It was a case in which the entire Middle East had a dominant Sunni ethnic group which had their foot on the neck of everybody else and because the others knew it and didn't do anything about it, you had what they called peace and stability. Which nowadays, if you read the press reports and the anti-Israel journalists, they'll say, oh, in the good old Ottoman Empire days and all that, the Zionists came and screwed everything up. One of the good old empire days is that the one group completely and totally dominated the other one. The only problem joker in the deck in those days was Iran, which was a Shiite ethnic group, but they did the same thing. Anybody in the Iranian empire, as I just showed you, the Kurds or the Azeris or the Arabs or the Turkmens or the people you've never heard of, are dominated by the Shiite Persian group who stuck their foot on the neck of these minorities and made them like it. And so, Suleiman the Magnificent conquered a whole area and imposed the Sunni dominance, and Abbas of Persia and guys like him, they did the same thing on the Persian side. What happens when guys like him went up against guys like him? He had some bloody wars, my friends. It's called the 1500s and the 1600s and early 1700s in the Middle East, in which Iraq shifted back and forth and forth and back. First, Group A came and shafted everybody in Group B, and then Group B got revenge and did it to Group A, and then back and forth and forth and back. The latest round of this, may I remind you, took place in Ronald Reagan's time when you had a war between Saddam Hussein and Ayatollah Khomeini. It was nothing but the old stuff happening again. No different. You see how things change and things don't change. Whew. Now, um, this has been the case for so long as regarded as the norm, especially by the Sunni Arabs. The normal way, God's way, to run the world is that we should be dominating and beating the heck out of everybody else. Hence, the rage of the Sunnis against someone like Assad. And there's the cause of all the trouble in Syria, because he's not from the right group, 
And the father was very capable and ruthless. As you know, he killed an entire city. Am I right or am I wrong? Homs. Like, you know, it's in 1982, I think, or 83. Doesn't matter. But he, 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 not Hamas. He, he killed it the whole, the whole town. <laughs> Let's get that straight. Uh, and the point was that he says this, you may be the Sunni majority, but don't mess with me, baby. Okay? And the son, as you know, is doing the same thing. If Obama didn't stop him, he would still be using the poison gas. True or not? And then the, all the opponents would be dead from the, from the chemical weapons and the poison gas. So what is this really all about? Because these guys represent an inversion of the hierarchy. Guys like that, from their tribe, are not supposed to be running the Sunnis. That's Ibrigat Kertavelt. You understand? It's, 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 it's not the right way. It's supposed to be, we're running you guys. Uh, thoughtful Arabs have contemplated these facts for a long time, and in the course of the 20th century, devised two solutions. One was secular Arab nationalism. That's the meaning of Nasser. Michel Aflaq was the founder of the Ba'athist party, he was a Christian, Arab. Therefore, obviously, he didn't want a Muslim kind of thing. He tried to create a secular thing in which he dreamed of a dream that you can admire from a distance. And that is, why can't we be like America where the religion doesn't matter? Let's just everybody be Egyptian and have an identity as a national group. We're Syria. Why can't we just be all Syrians? Why can't we just be all Iraqis? And put, you know, and, and you know, this one have a Christmas tree, and that one have a menorah, and that one have a this, and the best American kind of style. You could hear where it's coming from, and Nasser was the embodiment of it, but it died with him. And Nasser wasn't able to make it work either, but he captured the imagination with his charisma for 18 years that he was in power, and you know, gave the Arabs a vision that this would happen. But of course it didn't happen. Uh, instead, you got this, right? You got the Assads, you got Saddam. Who, this was the Ba'athist party that I spoke about. This is the Ba'athist ideology, which is put religion aside, focus on the nationalistic elements, the secular elements, and create a reality out of that, and make a modern state with a modern economy that provides food and jobs and shoes and things like that for everybody, and let the other stuff wade into insignificance. But it all degenerated into Nazi-type states, as you all know. Uh, a second derech has been that of Sunni Islam as a, as a revival. That's, that's what Osama bin Laden and the Al-Qaeda guys and all these other guys are all about. They said, let's restore the proper hierarchy. Get one big state that we dominate everybody else and crush them. Now, the problem, of course, has been that the Sunni idea ought to appeal to everybody, but they have this religious extremism, as everybody knows. Remember this? Let's go to the next one. This is the fire where they won't let the girls out of school. You know what I'm talking about, right? They take the religion even farther than we do. I hope. Anyway, so, which is, of course, encounter, engendered a counter-reaction. So that's the whole battle between Sissi and Morsi, right? He represents closing down the school, you know, don't letting anybody out, and he says no, and, he, and, and Sissi knows that if Morsi comes over, he'll kill all the Sissis out there, and uh, because they represent the Nasserite establishment, the army and the police, the people that were set up by the Egyptian state during Nasser's time and have held power ever since then. And if one group has come to power, they'll shecht everybody in the other group and welcome, my friends, to the Middle East today and to Egypt. So it doesn't seem to be a solution to the problem. And there's certainly no Thomas Jefferson's, Arab Thomas Jefferson's running about. I can't somehow bracket these two over here, okay? Although that's what they need desperately. Isn't that the truth? The Arab world needs desperately for their own reason. I'm speaking now in a friendly terms to, to the Arabs. So you need a Jefferson out there, but it's not going to happen, as you and I know. So what do we see out of over here? There are no genuine Arab states. 
and there are no legitimate rulers, not one, deriving their power from the consent of the governed. Only a group of mafias, whose sole interest is to retain power for themselves and to use political trends like anti-Israelism to help them stay popular to the degree possible that such emotions can generate. So if you're an absolute dictator and everybody hates you for this, that, and the other, at least as you say, let's attack Israel, they give you some room. A guy like Sadat, for example, who was from this group, it would look like he might beat Israel. He got genuinely popular because at least he'll do something. Nasser and the others are also dictators, although they had a greater, he had a more charismatic base. If he could do something in Israel, that would kind of at least justify his hold on power. So I, I repeat, you really think the Arab-Israeli conflict is the core problem of the Middle East? The Sunnis face two real challenges, a small one and a big one. The small one are the non-Muslim minorities. In the past, the Sunnis simply held them down and dominated them, beat them up, though this can be modified by the European colonial powers. In the 1800s, the Europeans got too strong and they took over whole areas of the Middle East. And when they did that, and even the areas they didn't take over, they used their gunboat power to say, you can't beat up the Christians anymore. The British were so crazy, I've told you this in the past, they even say you can't beat up the Jews anymore. And so the Turks came to realize if we make up a grum, England intervened. Remember Montefiore went to complain about the Damascus affair in 1840 with a letter from Queen Victoria and a British battleship? Yeah, it wasn't the same, wasn't the good old Middle East anymore. So this is something that the Sunnis were humiliated by and have been humiliated ever since. The most extreme example in their mind of what I just described is the entire Balfour Declaration of the State of Israel. To them it represents a permanence of the European colonials inverting the hierarchy, preventing us from killing the Jews of being them up, as is the norm. That should it be. It should be, I'm sure, if you talk among Arabs themselves, they say, if the British and the other guys hadn't interfered, the Jews would know their place. And everybody would be happy, as we were in the old days. We never had a problem with them. We all lived side by side in peace and harmony, as long as they knew their place. You see? Um, how do you the problem for the Sunnis is how to restore the old days. They can't. So here's the plan. Though they don't trumpet this, the Sunnis for some time now have been engaged in a certain kind of ethnic cleansing, hence the steady removal of the Christians from the Middle East, which they only talk about a little bit on the news. The same way that I was driven out of Forest Park. <laughs> you beat them up, you break the windows, you do this, you do the cars, and the guy leaves. You see, that's, that's going on as we speak in Bethlehem, in Nazareth, and of course in the other countries around the Middle East. This is what this way it is. This is a variation of the Hitlerian idea of Jew-free Europe. You have ethnic cleansing without mass murder. Notice Hitler introduced into the equation something that nobody thought about before. It used to be in the Middle East, he said, you're stuck with these lousy Jews and Christians, you're stuck with the Druze and the Maronites and the others, how do we keep them down? And then came along Hitler and he captured the imagination of the Sunnis. He said, oh, it's possible to totally get rid of them. Either you kill them or you get them out some other way. And that, of course, would solve the problem because then we wouldn't have any minorities here and it would be a totally Sunni zone. What I just told you is the express program, for example, of the Al-Qaeda and all those similar groups. They'll tell you this explicitly. There's no room for anybody else except the right people. That's what it is. Um, the desperate character of the current Syrian civil war reflects all of this because the Alawites and people that know that if the other side wins, which Obama is backing the other side, if Obama wins, they will kill all the Alawites or, or kick them out. So that you'll have a pure Syria in which everybody's just Sunni. The Druze will also be shafted. But that's, that is the program. You see? That, I mean, I think you kind of know this, sort of. 
but I'm just bringing it out in a crystallized form, perhaps. But that's the bad. Do you hear what I'm saying? We consider Assad the bad guy, and he is a bad guy. They're all bad guys. But the other guys, if they take over, the plan is to get rid of one way or the other, as the expression goes, of everybody who's not a Sunni. And then you won't have the problem that you had in the old days of any foreign powers intervening to protect minorities because there won't be any minorities over there. It'll be a perfect world. The other challenge the Sunnis face, the bigger challenge, is from the Shiites, who, in the case of Iran, now have the A-bomb. Or do they not? Okay? I mean, I just put these two together, President Obama and President Iran, and you know what that means. Right? This country is not preventing them. It's not preventing them from getting nuclear weapons. That's an understatement. The Shiites want to take over all of Islam. Well, why not? There's no chance of the Sunnis taking over the Shiites, but there's a chance, the danger of the Shiites taking over the Sunnis and getting rid of Sunniism. So they're going to do to the Sunnis what the Sunnis would like to do to the non-Muslims. It's a great world we have over there. For example, not many people outside the Arab world, Muslim world, are aware that Egypt was once a Shiite country, a Shiite bastion. They have what they call the Fatimid dynasty. And Saladin, who is often celebrated, I always like this, because Saladin today, ever since Nasser, had been a hero of Arab nationalism. There are statues to him, as you see over here, and paintings and all the rest of it, because he kicked the Crusaders out. But in reality, Saladin was, in the old days before the Christians introduced this whole theme, was not a popular figure in the Arab world, because first of all, if you're a Shiite, you hate him, because he turned the whole country into Apocorsis. When Saladin took over Egypt, he switched everybody to the Sunni. He actually had his prime minister do so, a guy named Al-Fadil, who was a Palestinian from Ashkelon, whose best friend, incidentally, was another other than the Rambam, the Maimonides. That's how the Rambam was able to survive and flourish in Egypt, because he was buddy-buddy with Al-Fadil, who was the prime minister under Saladin. The Rambam, I don't think, was a doctor, as far as I know, of Saladin, the ruler, but he was an Al-Fadil. And I'll just give you one example. The Rambam, when he was um, moved to Egypt after living for a long time in Morocco and places like that, uh, where he had to pretend to give the Murano, so he had to pretend to be a Muslim. He went to his mosque and all this kind of stuff in there. And when he came to Egypt, he came out of a closet and he said he's a Jew. And as far as he knows, he, Egypt, it's a new identity. But some guy from Morocco once visited Egypt and said, I know you. you used to be a Muslim. You know what that means. If you're a Muslim, you switch back, you chayav Misa. And so what are you going to do about it? He didn't want to have a trial. So he did what they used to do in Baltimore if he had a traffic ticket. You go to Jack Pollock, right? And so the Rambo went to Alphadil. He said, what am I going to do about this? And the case was removed from the docket. <laughs> and that's the way they do business in Baltimore, I mean in Egypt, my friends. <laughs> okay? That's a, I would say it's a rather important episode in the lifetime of my mind. That's why he lived as long as he did. Now, um, but remember, Alphadil is, is a monster to Iran because he switched the country from the Shias to the Sunnis. You can be sure that in the yeshivas of Iran and the, the madrasas and all that, they're still talking about one day we're going to undo this terrible crime that was committed in the time of Saladin. Whereas the average American thinks Saladin is, is something you eat, you know, before soup. Right? <laughs> so, it's, you know, it, it, it's a problem out there. That's why if somebody asks me, what do you think about the Middle East? I say it takes an hour and a half to explain. The, um, <laughs> the Iranians dream at this minute, they talk about it, of taking over Mecca. It doesn't get better than that. True? The Mecca has been violated by Sunni control since the 600s. If you're a Shiite, the Shiites start 20 years after death of Muhammad when the Sunnis, as they call them, killed the, 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 the Mashiach. And so, uh, you know, Ali. And so, uh, what do you call it? Ever since then, Arabia and the most holy sites have been under the control of unbelievers. And not only that, but the most 
ultra of all the believers, which is the Wahhabis. He doesn't get more than that. The Wahhabis destroyed Muhammad's house back in the 1700s. They destroyed the stuff on his shrine. To the Shias, these are all sacred things. Oh my goodness. Again, if you're interested, I'm not going to spend an hour to do it. There's, there's, there's plenty of uh, bad feeling over there. And it's totally possible, by the way, my friends, that a war can break out along sectarian lines between Iran and the Arabian Peninsula. It would have happened already, if not for fear of America. Look at the map. Here's Iran and here's Saudi Arabia. It's only across the, uh, the uh, Persian Gulf. The, Arabians are uh, the Iranians, if you follow the news, just have now an Atlantic fleet they're, they're trying to build. You hear what I said? An Atlantic fleet, okay? One day they're going to bring the Atlantic fleet back to the Persian Gulf, and who are they going to bomb? And by the way, they won't have to bomb them because the great majority of the people in the eastern part, in this area of Saudi Arabia, hate Saudi Arabia. As I told you before, they're, they're Shiites. And so you see what's happening over here, and the only thing preventing is America. And what does America look like right now? Not very strong. Obama doesn't project, because this is the whole critique of him, as, as, as you know. Now, all this poisoned history has to be taken into account whenever anyone contemplates the Middle East situation. So you ask me about what the future is, <laughs> it's, it's complex, so what can I do about it? As you can see, the Arab-Israeli conflict is merely a piece of the whole pie. It all depends on which way the Middle East is heading. At the moment, we're in January of 2014, Israel has to pay attention to three immediate neighbors undergoing turmoil fraught with possibilities. First and foremost, you got Egypt, 85 million people. Here, the legacy of Nasser is battling it out with the legacy of Hassan al-Banna. Nasser represents the secular Arab uh, uh, party. He started the Muslim Brotherhood, the Muslim Bros, right? And this guy is, you'll have to excuse the diagonal, Sisi sees himself as the successor of Nasser. Morsi sees himself as the successor of al-Banna. I don't think most Americans even know who Nasser is. They sure as heck don't know who Obama is, you know, they think it's Obama or something, you know. And so, you know, it, it, but it's, it's next door to Israel. If, you know, if the house adjacent to me is on fire, it affects me. If Sisi wins and Egypt remains divided, it'll be good for Israel. If he wins, it means the army will take over their control. You'll have a huge uprising underground by the Muslim Brotherhood. They'll always be agitating and blowing things up. The Egyptian government will be too busy handling their own terrorist problems to be able to do what they really like to do, which is stab the Israel in the back. This was the story of Mubarak. Okay? Mubarak, whenever he fo I followed him very closely. Whenever Mubarak had the possibility, he tried to stick it to Israel. But God so arranged matters, and of course in the 1980s and the 1990s and the first decade of the 20th century, until he fell from power, he usually had so much trouble with his local domestic Muslim Brotherhood opposition and they were assassinating his officials and going after him and wrecking the country and all the rest of it, that he had to devote so much attention over there, he had to therefore maintain good relations with Israel, and he wasn't able to do as badly as he would have desired to do. If Morsi wins, it'll be a bloodbath. A monolithic Egypt, it'll be bad for Israel. So it depends. Now let's take a look at Syria. The conflict there, as I told you, between the Sunni majority, whose most dynamic element is the Muslim Brotherhood, which will be bad for Israel. I mean, who is the one making speeches right now that they should take over Syria. Uh, Al-Zawahiri, who's Egyptian, by the way, but the head of Al-Qaeda, I know you know that. He says now, over and over again, in the tape recordings that they put on the internet, that you know the number one goal now is Syria. Once Syria is taken over, then we go to Israel. That's what he says. This is the reason why Putin and Iran are backing Assad. Because they say, we don't want this guy to take over, because then he's going to encourage 
the Muslims in Russia to rise up and blow up Russia, which they're doing also, like the Chechens. And so look what a tangled business it is, okay? So it's not that anybody likes anybody, they're just thinking about their own Dalaramas. That's prohibited to Israel, but it's permitted to Russia. It's permitted to Iran, it's permitted to America, it's permitted to everybody else. Hence the hypocrisy. If Assad survives, it will be in weakened form, which would be good for Israel. If he somehow survives, he'll have a huge Sunni group that hates his guts. And he'll be constantly having to spend most of his time trying to hold these guys down. That's just the way it is. Assad's violent anti-Israelism is a classic case of an Alawite regime trying to earn its creds in the Sunni world. That's why Syria has been so vehemently hostile to Israel ever since the 1960s. They've been trying to say this, we're as good as anybody else. Don't think I'm a bad person. I hate Israel. I hate Israel more than you do. So therefore, I might not have the exact same religion you do, but cut me some slack over here because I'm trying to conquer and destroy Israel. But that card has been played too many times, and as soon as you don't want to hear anything, you get out of the way. You see? It's a similar situation in Iraq, right, where you have this Shiite business that the Sunnis are trying to hold down, and the Sunnis are trying to say, we'll go against Israel and all this in order to get credit so that the, the Shiites and the Iran next door won't go into them. I may be boring people. I don't know what's going on. You know, it, it's, com it's a complex situation, you see? Um, the best possible thing that could happen in Israel in this decade is what? Establishment of a Kurdistan. That would bust for Mamzerim. Syria, Iraq, Iran, and Turkey. Oh, this would be good. Doesn't get better than that. Right? That is Israel's best case scenario. Would Obama and the others let it? Obama would say like this. We don't want to set the stability of the international Middle East system. That's what they say. I mean, I'm not making up. This is what they say. Ask the State Department. This will not help encourage stability in the Middle East if the just, I repeat, the just, national claims of the Kurds not to be dominated by the Turks or the Syrians or the Iraqis or the Iranians is given any kind of play. True, the situation is not perfect. It's not optimal. In a perfect world, the Kurds would have the right to self-determination. But we don't want to upset the internationals. What's that all about? That's all a bunch of whatever. So it is what it is. The Arab states, of course, in general, oppose the Kurdistan. That would call into question the entire Sykes-Picot system, wouldn't it? <laughs> Once you make a new country, then you ask your question, Taka, where's the legitimacy of the other borders? Who made them up? And then the people in power lose. And that they never want to do. Okay? So the glass is half empty, but it's also half full, as far as Israel is concerned. If Israel is under pressure, so are the Arabs, so are the Arab neighbors. The good Lord works in mysterious ways. The other half of the question about the coming decade is this. Can Israel overcome its own problems, internal problems, to continue as a stable democracy with a legitimate government? I repeat, a legitimate government, something that exists nowhere in the Muslim world. You know, you got it. we Jews have our problems, but we actually created a stable state. Look how hard that is. Took the British eight centuries. It took the Germans a long time. Israel had to do it on the ground. There's reasons for it, but nevertheless, you know, eh, that's something we can pat ourselves on the back on. Now, in other words, what are the dangerous rifts in Israel that could tear apart the fabric from within? Here's a map of Israel. Uh, look at this. Here the Arabs are 50%, something like that. And here the Arabs are 75%. Here's Nazareth in this area. This is what I told you is the coming struggle after Kerry engineers a peace treaty between Israel 
and the Palestinian Authority. These are the areas that you see over here with substantial Arab populations, which are going to demand self-determination, either in the, be a separate state or actually be part of the Arab state and Israel be under pressure to do something about them. What do you do about the Arab, Isra the Israeli Arabs? They're biding their time, waiting for the aftermath of the treaties they told you before. Look at this. Here's Goebbels in speaking in Czechoslovakia, Joseph Goebbels. That means that in, this was like 1936. That's way before the Czech crisis of the Munich crisis. So Czechoslovakia was a democracy, and because democracy, anybody can come and say what they want. And so Goebbels came in there, and he said the following. He said, we intend to take over this country, and when we do, we're going to stick it to the Czechs, but you can't do anything about it, because you've got a democratic country, and you've got to give me the right of free speech. So I can say whatever I want about you. I can say I intend to kill you the day I take over, and you can't do anything about it because I have the rights of free speech. Which is essentially what the Arabs are doing. They say, we want to use the tools of democracy, but once we get the democracy, we'll kick all the Jews out one way or the other. We'll get rid of them one way or the other. Ah, it's not democratic. You can't do anything about it. Is there a democracy? <laughs> Those are the rules. You think I'm exaggerating? You know I'm not. Look at the representatives of the Arabs in the Knesset. They say these words. They're obnoxious. They know they can do this because Israel has to play by the rules. You see, it is, it is what it is. And so it's pretty sad. Um, some people will disagree with me, and, 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 and some do, usually the more liberal types, so they'll say as follows. They'll say, the Arabs in Israel won't do this because they have a much higher standard of living. And therefore, they benefit by the Israeli connection and their arguments along those lines. But this argument was debated back in the 1930s between Ben-Gurion and Musa Alami, who was the leading uh, Palestinian intellectual, shall we say, and leader in the movement. Ben-Gurion at that time said, it's good if the Jews move in because it builds up the economy. It gave them facts and figures how the standard of living of the Arabs was raised by the Jewish kibbutzim. I'm saying the standard of living of the Arabs. And Musa Alami said at that time, We'd rather be a desert for 100 years and be our own country and not have any Jews over here. And eventually we'll get it right. 200 years. And I understand that you understand that point of view. And that's where the Arabs are coming from. And you can't blame them. Then, of course, there are divisive issues among the Jews themselves. Used to be the Ashkenaz and the Sephard. That's not so bad these days. No, the, one of the main reasons is neither the Ashkenaz nor the Sephard in particular are any illusion, under any illusions of what the Arabs would do then if they take over. And so it's a community of faith as much as anything else. I gave a whole speech here earlier this semester, shall we say, uh, about the ethnic problems in Israel, especially in the 50s and so forth, and it's not repaired totally by any means. But it's a lot less since, I would say, Begin's time, and, and that's all a good thing. The religious versus secular is the big one, but again, that's kind of complex. Dati versus Kiloni, per se, is a doable matter. It's complex, but it's doable. There's no... Um, uh, problem with there, especially if you talk about the RZA, the Mizrahi, and so forth. I mean, they're, you know, they're okay with the state. The Haredi principled rejection of the state is a problem. I repeat, the principled rejection of the Medina because of demographics. Israel knows this, but is not sure what to do about it. I repeat, here we're talking about people whose ideology is one in which they say, at least officially, it would be better if there's no Israel. That Israel is illegitimate from the religious point of view. Here we run into a problem of what we call ideology. The Haredi world has a decidedly non-violent physical view, but an extremely violent ideological view. They don't believe in hurting anybody, and they don't. I mean, not really. But if you talk about the level of ideology, officially speaking, the state of Israel is created legitimately. It's not because it's everything that goes with that. Here, the all-important factor for the future 
is the spectrum of Haredi views. Because it turns out that not everybody really feels the way I just said it. On the street, it's a big question. You see somebody, just because a chasa, just because somebody is yeshivish, doesn't necessarily mean they like the state of Israel go down the tubes. You see? You have a substantial portion of people who figure maybe Israel didn't start the right way, whatever, but it's here and it's turned out good and it's, you know, got issues, but there's a lot of positives in there. Uh, I could give this speech if I had to. Israel, the biggest Malcolm Torah, and, you know, wait till tomorrow and so on and so forth. You know, it's, it's, there's a spectrum in the Haredi views. Um, the Chilonim, the secular Jews, are in a big quandary. If you do nothing, the problem suddenly becomes more acute. That's how they see it. Because the Haredi gets bigger and bigger, and um, the ideology continues the same. But on the other hand, if you act against them, you play into the hands of the radicals. You radicalize them. That's his problem. What are you going to do? Put everybody in jail that doesn't want to go in the army? Realistically. Realistically. What's the plan? All you do is turn everybody off and turn them into an enemy, an active enemy of the state. That's not good either. So what to do? The only hope, from the Israeli point of view, is for the moderating of Haredim and their integration somewhere else to Israeli life. Not, not involving being not from at all, but changing the ideology that I just said, which is it would be better if there was, it'd be better if there's no uh, state of Israel altogether and the Arabs come and take over. Here we come to something very, uh, very, very fascinating. I'm at the end almost, but I have a, a very, very interesting um, piece to share with you. Unfortunately, I can only find the Hebrew. I'm sorry about that. So I'm, maybe everybody can't, won't be able to understand it, but I'm going to tell you what it means outside. And then even those of you who don't understand the Hebrew exactly, you'll get the basic kind of idea. Very thoughtful, again, from this, um, uh, I guess, like 60 Minutes of Israel, you know, that kind of a show. Uh, Panim Matimot, I think it's called. And... Um, I'm known Levy, and he did this whole thing on the Haredim. I gave you a piece of that a, a month or two ago, but uh, here he's talking about, and this is written a, a, a year or two ago, you know, it's, it's not current, but he's talking about the fascination of, of significant el, el, uh, groups among the Haredim uh, with Israel and the army and all the rest of it, who they like and kind of venerate on the one hand, even though ideologically they don't feel comfortable with it. So we're talking about facts on the ground on the one hand versus pure hashkaf on the other hand, and the point he's going to be trying to make is that um, you see in, in, in everyday life, there's going to be a whole group of kids going from a Haredi yeshiva, they're going all the way up north to the Lebanon border, Hardov, where there's some kind of tradition, I never heard about that, Abba Mavina was there, did the bridge made him summer or something like over there, and there's like a, a tiny little shrine or a shul or whatever, and in order to go up there, it's a high security area, so you got to go up with the Tzahal, and all these kids are like all over the place with these soldiers, and handling with them, even though they themselves are totally um, with payas and uh, as, you, as you call in Israel, black. And, uh, and you see, it's a very positive kind of a chemistry, even at the same time, in the ideology sense, it shouldn't shnim. So will life on the ground eventually trump the Philshaw's coffers or not? That's, that's a very big uh, kind of a, of, of a problem uh, or a question. That, that's the big question I leave you with. So I'll, I'll, I'll show you this. this is about a five minute a segment. Let, let's take a look at it. themselves as Israelis. 
When an Israeli helicopter crashed with a lot of dead. They're climbing all over the, the armor. This is the tour to Hardo. This is the army guy leading the tour. The army is escorting them to Davin. Showing him the Syrian border. Shiva hackers. Azerim ayenu miyazgim etor achov acharei. 
and they don't approve of, of making fun of the Yom Atzmaut. You understand? There's a, some people that don't stand still when they blow the siren on the day before Israel Independence Day. But it's a tiny group. But these guys are saying, what are, what are these guys making life? They don't represent me. It's a few nuts. Okay? So this is the big question. I leave you with this. This is the big question. Um, we ask about the coming decade in Israel. Uh, you, I, I don't want to call it an unofficial Zionism of the Haredi, but you, you understand what I mean. I'm sorry, everybody, I couldn't do it in English, but I hope most of you got the basic idea, at least, if you weren't able to read or, or, or hear it. And uh, it's the big question, which way, which way is the country going? Um, that is, of course, an, an answer that we're going to discover in the next couple of years. And so all I do is close and say, I'll see you all next year. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.